You are listening to the Rooted Ministry Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered ministry to youth. This episode was recorded at a workshop session at our 2018 conference in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about Rooted, visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. From Chicago, we planted a church um, well, about six and a half years ago in downtown Chicago. And um, so part of this, this workshop really comes out of um, just the experience of our church. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever been part of a church plant, but we planted our church like a parachute plant. So it was just literally just God just speaking and, you know, I just planted. And so uh, the Lord literally from one person and with a promise began to just grow the church. And um, we've now planted eight locations in the last six and a half years with really like pretty much no marketing other than once in a while we'll post on Facebook, which is free, right? And um, we've never had a worship pastor. Uh, until this summer, we finally hired a worship pastor. Um, we never had a full-time children's pastor, you know, and so we did things, everything, pretty much the wrong way, if that makes sense. And I think even even like when you think about like um, just your own church, I, we we had a prayer meeting. So I had a sabbatical this summer for the last three and a half months. I came back two weeks ago, and. Um, after the sabbatical, um, the first thing I really wanted to do with our people was to have a citywide prayer night. And um, about 200 to 250 people showed up for that prayer night. Two and a half hours we prayed and worshiped together, um, read scripture. And a guy came up, actually, I was, I was sharing with Clark. Uh, this guy came up from a church in uh, the West Coast that was about 1,200 people. And uh, he came up to us after the prayer night. And, you know, sometimes when people come up to you with a certain look, you get you brace yourself as a pastor, right? And um, so I was bracing myself um, because he was new to our church. He just moved back from the West Coast to Chicago. And uh, he just had this look of almost like just like astonishment. And he said, uh, he said, Dave, um, you talked about in your sermon how um, so many churches will have churches that are huge and great preaching but when they have a prayer meeting, uh, almost no one shows up. He said that that was our church. He said our church was 1,200 people, and we had 15 people show up for their prayer prayer meeting. And it's not just his church. I, I was uh, I was I had the privilege to shadow John Piper for a summer years ago, and um, just to kind of like help him out, you know. No, I was kidding. Um, so um, I was a consul- I was brought in as a consultant. No, I was kidding. Um, and so I brought like eight of my guys to come to the prayer meeting because they have a prayer meeting before every service. And I was shocked because the the group that I brought was larger than the group that was in the room. And this is John Piper. And he's in the room. Like, I mean, I thought people would just come just to be like, oh, I, you know. Yeah, forget the prayer. Just so I get to meet John Piper. But, um, but yeah, so um, there was about 14 of us maybe total in that room. And eight of them were my friends. And uh, I just, I was sad, actually. You know, I was like, do people think that there's power in John Piper apart from prayer, you know, apart from God and. And I think there's there's something about like, I mean even like I mean our, this group is relatively small, right? In terms of a workshop, it, it, why why is prayer the very thing that people feel like you know what like I don't need to go to that one, you know? And it, it may be because they're like who the heck is this guy speaking, right? But that's fine. <laughs> but uh, but like but in terms of like the topic, you would probably guess that prayer is one of the least popular topics if you had workshops. You know what I'm saying? Because um, people just feel like they assume it, but they don't actually do it, you know. 
So when you look at the text that I want to have us uh, look at from Luke chapter 11, and as you're turning to it, um, basically the disciples come to Jesus after he's praying, and they say to him, uh, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And I, I, well, the thing that, that fascinates me about this is that in, in light of the four Gospels, if you, if you study the four Gospels, there's only... Uh, this is the only direct request from the disciples to Jesus to teach them something specifically. You know, there, there's there's this vague one where they're trying to exercise demons and they couldn't do it, and they're like, how, how come we couldn't do it? But they're not asking for directions necessarily, right? This is the only one in the four Gospels. And when you think about the the example that Jesus had, you know, in, in their life, when when Jesus had walked on water, when he had turned the water into wine, when he had, you know, raised people from the dead, when he had exercised demons, when he had taught with authority, you know, um, of all the things that, and I'm sure they asked him, like, yo, how'd you do that, you know? Um, yo being the Hebrew, right? the Greek, you know, saying, but anyway, so, um, but they're like, you know, how did you do that? Um, but the only one recorded in the scriptures is, Lord, teach us to pray. And, and I find that fascinating because um, if you think about um, how boring prayer is, right? Like, if, if I had sent, like, a YouTube video out to, you know, of just somebody praying. Like, there, there's no way that I would have more than three views, right? And it'd probably be me and three different computers <laughs> viewing myself just to get the view count up, right? So, um, it'd be it'd be... It'd be so boring, right? Or if you think about even discipleship, right? When you disciple your youth group kids or you disciple your youth leaders or you've been discipled yourself, I know of almost, I don't, there's probably a few, but I know of almost nobody who's actually been taught to pray by their discipler. So we'll teach them theology. We'll teach them the gospel, hopefully. We'll teach them how to read the Bible, which is absolutely important. We'll teach them maybe how to lead or um, how to structure things or how to cast vision, whatever, whatever it is. that uh, That's what most workshops are going to be about, right? But who's actually taught you to pray? Or who's actually taught you how to pray? Or even, you know, um, how to create a culture of prayer within your church, Right? So one of the greatest quotes that I have, uh, that I've heard uh, on prayer, it comes from, I believe, Hudson Taylor, who's the founding missionary of the China Inland Missions, but now called OMF. And he said, and this, this, is, this is such a good quote, he says, when man works, man works. But when man prays, God works. And so, to me, I, I really believe that. Like, I'm one of those weird people who actually believes that that's what happens in prayer. That, that the, the, the church in America in particular and probably in Europe and some other places have tended to become a lot more um, human-centered, right? So if we can get, like, you know, when you think about, like, a, a youth conference that you might have or a retreat every year, right? Uh, the, the, the first thought is, what speaker can I bring in that will be relevant to our students, right? Uh, what worship team can come that can create the right mood or whatever it is, you know? What games can we play? You know, what prizes can we have? Whatever, right? And those are all, you know, things that I think you should do in youth ministry from time to time. But um, where is the source of your hope and power, right? And I think a lot of us, when you, when you think about what you're functioning in, most of us, the power really is, and the hope is really in people, or in our strategies, or in ourselves, right? And so you can have like a well-groomed or well-oiled youth ministry and really have no sense of his presence, no sense of power, no sense of you know, transformation, right? You can even have the right theology, right? And not have any power 
And so that's why, to me, this topic is so important, not just to learn today, but by God's grace for you guys to really apply in your own life and then uh, apply into the culture of your church. I mean, I, I would say for, for us, our church's average age is 25 years old. Um, we have a ton of college students in our church in the city. And um, as, as somebody who, who inherits these college students from youth groups, if, if you will, right? Like, I, I wish they would have learned to pray from their youth pastors. Like, not just for the sake of our church, but for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of their own joy. I, I wish, as a, as a pastor myself and a planter and someone who was in youth ministry for about 10 years before I um, went into kind of adult ministry, I wish that um, I had learned to pray. I wish I had learned what dependent prayer looks like. So in our church, um, our, we have five values, and one of our five values is dependent prayer. And, um, and I can tell you, if I have time, I'll tell you some more stories about how that, that worked out into our church. But um, I, I think the secret sauce of our church is that dependent prayer, this desire to just really bring great glory to God through uh, being on our knees. Okay, so, um, so the first thing I want you to notice is that it's the only recorded request because I think when the disciples observed Jesus as they were, right, as, as, as followers of, or disciples would, would observe their rabbi, they observed him and they noticed that even though he was doing all these great miracles, the secret to that was his time with the Father. And uh, one of the things I tell people is, if the Son of God who created the heavens and the earth came into this earth and he had to pray all the time, mean, he would withdraw after a long day of ministry. He would pray all night. He would pray early in the morning, right? They would wake up. He's gone praying. And so if the Son of God was or found prayer necessary for him to be able to live out the call on his life, how much more then for us who are not the Son of God? Amen? Is that clear? Okay. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. So... If, if we're not the Son of God, like what pride and arrogance that we would think that we wouldn't need prayer at least to the extent, if not more, than Jesus Christ Himself, right? Like He was completely dependent upon the Father. Like everything He spoke, He heard from the Father. Everything He did, He got from the Father, right? Through prayer. And so what are we saying about God to our youth group if we are prayerless ourselves? Okay. What is the message we're giving to them? And, and I think the message implicitly is, it's on you. You can do it. You have strength. You have strategy. You can do these things. And, and we are called to learn. We are called to study. We are called to you know, be open to different strategies that might be effective. But the power comes from God. Amen? And so we want God to work. And I really, I, I say this with conviction. David's on my staff. We believe that God works through prayer. Our two and a half, we had a two and a half hour prayer meeting of mainly millennials. They stayed for two and a half hours. Praying, worshiping, and you know, doing um, like liturgy, and, and and God met them in such a significant way that literally people began to talk about it for the rest of the week about how powerful that time was. And so when God begins to meet them in those prayer meetings, and then when I begin to from the pulpit and other leaders begin to share, hey, so and so came to Christ. Here's how they came to Christ. Uh, they they met someone from our church at a Broadway show. They happened to sit by each other. The girl, this is a true story, the girl was from Taiwan. She grew up Buddhist. Right before she moves to Chicago, uh, some American missionaries meet her and say, hey, if you're going to Chicago, you should check out a Chinese-speaking church because she speaks Mandarin. Her English is maybe 50% fluency. 
So she comes to Chicago. There's a historic Chinese church in Chicago. It's, you know, they say you should go there. She feels no desire to go. She meets this couple. The, the husband happens to be Taiwanese, all right, from Taiwan, okay? And the wife is Korean. They sit next to each other. They start talking. And they say, hey, you should check out our church. Our church is English speaking. She should have no desire to come. And so she gets excited. She's a Buddhist, but she's an Asian. So she calls her dad for permission to go to church in Taiwan. Says, dad, is it okay if I go to a church tomorrow? He says, absolutely. Go ahead. She wakes up at 6 a.m. She's so excited to go to church. She's a Buddhist. She's never been to church before. She comes to church an hour early. No one comes to church an hour early. Like not even me. You know what I'm saying? She comes an hour. Okay, there's a couple people come, but not me. Anyway, so she comes an hour early to our church by herself. The week before, we do an altar call about twice a year. We, the week before, um, I did an altar call. So I've never done an altar call two weeks in a row. I preach the gospel not knowing she's in the crowd. And um, I feel led to do an altar call for some reason. So I do an altar call. Only two people. The week before, we had uh, the most people raise their hands in the history of our church. This week, only two people raised their hand. One to my right and one in front of me. Well, the week before, there was so many people that we ran out of like leaders to like counsel them. And so I was looking in this crowd of like 600 people trying to find somebody who I could trust. And there was this girl who happened to be from Malaysia who was Mandarin speaking. And I, she was, she didn't, she told me this later. She said that she was in the back of the auditorium and she said, she prayed, God, make Pastor Dave pick me because I've never led anyone to Jesus and I want to lead someone to Jesus. <laughs> and she was not a leader. She was not someone who was really active. She was a resident, so she was super busy with, you know, residency. And, uh, and we're talking like this. That, that auditorium is a cavernous. And so I just ran, I pick her. Mm-hmm. And um, I, ha- I find out that she's Mandarin speaking that day. Okay? So the next week, this girl raises her hand to receive Christ. And I knew that she was so excited to lead someone to Jesus last week. And she was sitting right next to me when I spoke. So I said, hey, do you want to lead someone else to Jesus? She's like, yeah. So I said, well, there's this girl in the back that, you know, so let's go and meet her and then I'll introduce you to her and then you can pray with her. I find out that she only speaks, she basically speaks Mandarin first. This girl speaks Mandarin too. And so she was able to lead her to Jesus Christ. Now, when you hear that story, what part of that story could you give us credit for? You know what I'm saying? Like if I was trying to take credit for that, which a lot of speakers try to take credit for things, right? If I try to take credit for that, you would say you're an idiot because that has nothing to do with you. That has everything to do with a God who loved her way more than you ever. You don't even know she existed. She met a couple in a Broadway show that happened to be from Taiwan. We don't have a lot of people from Taiwan in our church. Maybe 10 people. Okay. And then she happened to, I happened to have this one girl who had never led anyone to Jesus the week before. I happened to, while I was preaching, sense the Spirit telling me, and we're Southern Baptists, so we don't sense the Spirit much, but we, we sensed, we sensed that God was, I sensed that God wanted me to do another altar call, and I've never done two in a row, because we're, we're a millennial, very progressive c- congregation, so I felt very, very like cautious about doing any altar calls, right? And so all these things had to happen for God to lead this girl from Taiwan to Jesus Christ. Why did that happen? I'll tell you why. Because every single service, an hour before, we have a prayer meeting. Every week for 30 minutes, we have a prayer meeting. Every month for about two hours, we have a prayer meeting. Every year for 21 days, we fast and we pray in the beginning of the year. We had hundreds of millennials sign up to fast from social media, from any kind of media, and for me, ESPN, and and. 
from a lot of like foods that we like, right? So it was like a Daniel fast, so we did like vegetables and like basically unprocessed foods. And and 260 or so, I can't remember how many across our campuses signed up voluntarily to fast. And like good millennials, some of them complained anyway. They're like, well, does the, the Hebrew doesn't say that, like, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, first of all, you never said the Hebrew ever until, you know, and you volunteered for this, so stop complaining, right? Like, but, but that's the millennial culture. Anyway, so, so, so it was so beautiful to see how when we pray and literally, that's just one of, I could, I literally could fill up this whole hour with stories that would show you that when you come to our church, if you visit our church, if you come to Chicago, please visit our church. And when you do, you will be utterly unimpressed with the service. Like, like no one dresses up real nice in the worship team. You know what I mean? Like almost no one wears skinny pants, right? Almost no one. There's like one guy, but God loves him. Right. And so, um, and, and there's like, I preach for an hour. Like no one does that in Chicago. Okay. And, and I preach for an hour and, uh, we're not seeker sensitive, really. We're not, you know, we're none of that stuff. And yet God has grown our church significantly. And when other planters now, they come to me for advice. And I feel like they walk away like the rich young ruler, disappointed. Because I give them no strategy. I, I basically say, how are you doing with Jesus? Like, how's your walk with Christ? And, and how's your prayer life? And how are you leading your people in prayer and the word? That's basically it. And literally, they walk away like, is that it? And I'm like, no, yes, that is it. Like, that's it. Do you get it? Like, that's it. But for some reason, I think the enemy tries to get us to like get busy and human-centered and self-dependent. And so, and then we start to see some results of number growth or excitement or whatever it might be. And so then we just scrap prayer. We, I just think intimacy with God and prayer it's just hard for pastors. I don't know why. It's just hard for people who are leaders. Um, maybe it's because we idolize approval. I don't know what it is, but it just it's really hard for to find youth leaders who pray. Amen. And uh, if you're not that youth leader, hey, praise God, there's grace for you. You're here for a reason in this seminar. Um, if you repent, like I mean, God's gonna you know absolutely empower you to do this in the future. And uh, I do think there's some practical things that hopefully we'll have time to get to that have helped me at least. But let's just walk through this text really quickly. So um, you guys are familiar with the, the Lord's Prayer, right? And so let, let me just, just simply say, I mean, I can't go through all of this, but um, I love how it begins. Father, right? That, that intimate relationship with the Father, which, um, you know, for me, like this, this text, when I was, in, I was a student at Gordon-Conwell and I was taking a class in the inner city of Gordon-Conwell, our inner city campus in Boston. And I remember I was driving up to back to my campus in the suburb after a class and I decided to pray the Lord's Prayer. And, um, and I'm Korean, so I never called my dad father. Like, I don't even know a lot of white people call their dad father. They usually call him dad, right? But I called my dad Appa. And that's like the, the, the Greek is like Abba, right? So I, I called him Appa. And so for whatever reason that day, first time in my life, I prayed the Lord's Prayer my whole life. I decided to change the words from our Father to our Appa who art in heaven. And when I prayed that, I literally felt this emotional wall come up between God and me because my dad was pretty abusive, verbally uh, almost all the time and at times physically. And, and this wall came up between God and me, you know. 
And, and I wonder even to, to this day, as I've you know, seen counseling for this and I've prayed this through and I've, I've read the Psalms and, and read some of the promises of God for these kinds of things, um, that a lot of us, I think, uh, our view of our Heavenly Father is deeply affected by our view of our earthly Father. Even if our Father was healthy, He's not God. Amen? And, and so I think just the, the tenderness of Jesus to say, this is the first thing that uh, I want you to pray that He's your Abba Father, that He's for you, that He's intimate. He wants to be intimate, right? I'm going to talk about that in my plenary talk about how uh, from Revelation 21, the first thing He yells is, now the dwelling of God is with men. Like, what an intimate God, right? This is not some kind of psychological, emotional fluff. This is what the Gospel was, was for. The, the, the cross was so that we could be, our intimacy with God could be restored that was lost in the garden. And that's the first thing he wants you to know, right? And, and, and I think you could take that father threat throughout the rest of this passage, right? When he talks about, like, which of you, you know, uh, fathers, if your son asked for this, right? There's a father there that walks right through that, okay? So that's the first thing that I want you to know. Second thing is, is he says, um, hallowed be your name, right? So, um, you know, I think most of you guys are gospel-centered people, so you know that this is not for our glory, but this is ultimately for his glory, so there's the prosperity theology that says, you know, God will answer uh, everything, right, that like I want from God, right? But it's not in light of His glory and not in light of His will and His kingdom, okay? But I, I would argue that if it's in the Scriptures and if it's going to bring great glory to God, right, whatever, whatever will maxima, maximally glor- uh, glorify God, He will answer. Not, not the way that we might want it to an- Him to answer, but the way that He will bring greatest glory to Himself, so if you pray a prayer like, you know, I was talking uh, on the podcast yesterday about uh, Psalm 139, 23 through 24 um, is a prayer that my mentor tells me to pray. And it's one of those prayers that I, I tell people it's a terrible prayer, but it's literally life-giving. That's kind of a lot of what the Christian life is like, right? There's a lot of terrible things about it, but it brings life. And he said, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. But those first three lines are terrible, right? Search me and know my... I mean, he knows our thoughts, so he's saying, let my thoughts be exposed for what they really are. Without the justifications, right? Without the excuses, right? Test me, right? Search me and and know my... Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Right? So you're basically saying, God, bring things into my life that will expose my anxiety because wherever the anxiety is, guess what's there? My idol, Right? That's where my substitute Savior is, right? So it's whether that's control, approval, right? Uh, your reputation, right? Pleasure, comfort, whatever it might be. You're saying, God, expose that. Expose my, my idols. Expose my substitute Saviors, right? Um, and, and, and see what's offensive. So uh, where do you see your offensive ways? Well, if you're, if you're married with kids, you probably see it with your kids. And, and, and if you blow up at your kids and then you, you know, came to my mentor and said, I blew up on my kid, he would say, what a gift. Right? Every time I have a failure or a blowout with somebody, he'll always say to me, what a gift. And I'm like, I hate you. <laughs> but, but it's true if holiness is your goal. right? If the glory of God is your goal, then you want to be exposed. Why? Because you want to see the areas that are not surrendered to Christ. right? And so when you pray these prayers, the, the last line is so important. But lead me in the way, the, the way to everlasting is the way through anxiety and through the offensiveness and through all of your idols. And that's the way when you repent of those things, when you see those things and repent of them, you can be led to the way everlasting, right? And so even in that prayer, 
I don't know if you've ever prayed that prayer or a prayer like that, but the joke is we don't like to pray that prayer because we know that God will always answer that prayer. Right? That's why we don't pray those prayers because we're like, I like my comfort too much and I really don't want God. That's really what we're saying. We don't say that explicitly, but that's what we're subconsciously saying when we don't pray that prayer. So if you have the framework of, okay, we have an intimate father who's for me, not against me. Amen. If, if, if I, if my desire, the Spirit of God's desire in me is to bring great glory to the name of Jesus and to see the kingdom of God advance, which it will because of the promises of God and the work of Christ, then whenever I pray prayers with that motivation, God will always answer. Do you see what I'm saying? This is not prosperity. You guys hear me, right? It's not for my sake. It's for His sake and His glory. Amen? And so that's the, the theological foundation for everything in prayer. You have to have this mentality that, and if you don't, you ask God to expose you and to repent of that, that everything that I pray should ultimately be in, in that context of the gospel, of, of the Father that's for me, that He's good, right? In the context of the glory of God and the glory of His name, and in the context of seeing the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of my name, right? Not my platform. Um, I know this is being recorded, so I hope this guy never listens to this, but I had a guy who's a planter who's really gifted. He came up to me recently. And I won't get the context because then he might hear and know. But he came up to me and he literally like just was talking to me for like 10 minutes about my church plant because he's planting his first church. And um, he says to me, hey, man, how do you get all those speaking invites? Like, do you have an agent or something? And I was like, like, it was like this clear, like, just he just wants to know how to get that kind. And I said, I have no agent. I have no Twitter. No, Inst- I have none of that. All right. I just, I don't know. Like word of mouth. I have no idea. Maybe they need an agent. So they're desperate. I have no idea. <laughs> but whatever it is, I don't know how, but the way that he asked it, it was about his own name. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like he was even trying to hide it <laughs> because in evangelicalism, sometimes it's okay to just promote yourself now. There's no like, there's not even shame about it anymore in the church. I'm not, not outside the church too, but inside the church, right? Because he's forgotten what this is all for. Okay, so if these things are true, this gospel of a father who's for us, if if the glory of God and the glory of his name and the extension of the kingdom of God, if those are our motivations, then you will pray because you will recognize that there is no way you can do that with a heart that's bent towards self self exaltation with a heart that is so powerless apart from the Spirit of God. Do you see? And so you have to know how... like Your call is not to be a good youth pastor. Your call is to bring glory to the name of Jesus and to extend the, the invisible and eternal kingdom of God. And you just don't... You're not that gifted. Does that make sense? He's saying, Lord, teach us to pray. He's like, let me teach you to pray. Let me show you what this is about. You see? And when you know how big this is, and how big the, the plan that God's called you to is, how, how could we ever think that we could do this in our own strength? Does that make sense? So that's the first one, right? And then the second one, this one is probably the one that I want to focus a little bit more on, because I think this is the one that's more confusing, is um, he says, And he said to them, uh, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say uh, to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence or my translation, shameless boldness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, I don't know if you've read this before. I'm assuming you have. 
But my guess is at least the first few times you read this, it didn't make any sense, especially if you read it clearly, right? He's saying the guy goes to his friend because he has a guest, unexpected guest that comes to him and he has no bread to set before him. So he goes to his friend, knocks on the door and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. And the guy's like, like because you're my friend, no way. But because of your impudence or shameless boldness, here, take as much as you want. It's like, what? You just said no because he's your friend. But now you're saying yes because of his shameless boldness. Does that make sense? It's hard to understand, right? And um, my best stab at this is really, if you understand the culture that this text was written, it was a shame-honor culture. And um, I'm Korean, and our culture is a shame-honor culture as well. And so in a shame-honor culture, when I was growing up, I grew up in America, but my parents were uh, first-generation Koreans, and so they were in a Korean church, and whenever my dad was an elder, and so whenever we would invite people for what they called like these zone Bible studies, um, my mom, and I hated those days because all the sons had to clean all day. Right, and we mainly had to clean the downstairs because usually they wouldn't go upstairs. So we had to vacuum. We had to. I always brought the windows. I was, I was younger, so I'd bring the windows, clean the windows. I would clean the bathroom, right? And my mom would then pull out stuff secretly from the refrigerator and freezer that I'd never seen before, right? Like gourmet foods that I'm like, where was this before? Like we were eating spam before. Now you're pulling out all this like amazing food, and they're bringing all this spread. And they might even be yelling at each other. They might be yelling at us. But as soon as the doorbell rings, they like open the door, they bow the, the Korean greeting, and they're smiling, and they act like everything's perfect. Because in a shame on our culture, it doesn't matter how messed up your family is, right? Your job is to honor those who are coming. Because it's not just about honoring them. Because, you know, for us, like, you know, maybe money is capital in America or whatever, whatever power. But in a shame on our culture, like, honor is capital, Right? And so you cannot shame your family, like ever, right? And so the way to honor your family, in a way, is to honor the guest. So even if you go to shame honor cultures where there's great poverty, they will literally give you the rest of their food, even if that means they'll be hungry for the next three days. Because the honor is more important than their comfort, than their satisfaction, okay? So you have to understand that, not just understand this story, but really to understand much of the Bible, but... Um, so what's happening is this guy comes and he literally has nothing to set before him. So, so now the honor right, of a name or a family is at stake. Do you see that? And so he goes to his friend and he's basically saying, if you were coming to me just for bread because you're my friend at midnight. Now midnight for them would be like 4 a.m. for us, right? Because they have no electricity. They're going to bed earlier. They probably had one room. They're probably sleeping on one bed. So literally he's saying like, you know, you're going to wake up my whole family, right? He's saying, if you were just my friend, you're like, yo, I'm hungry. Give me some bread, right? There is no way I'd wake up and give you the bread. I would be mad at you, right? But because of your impudence or your shameless boldness, in other words, because I, as a shame-honored person myself, understand the predicament that you're in, right? Because you're desperate to bring honor. Do you see? You're desperate to honor a guest. And he has no bread, so he says, all right, I'll give you the bread because of your shameless boldness, Okay? And so then he goes back and he's able to honor this, this, this guest, right? And so I think to me, when I think about youth ministry, when I think about ministry in general, when I think about the Christian life, I think this is an amazing picture of uh, prayer and uh, of, of uh, a healthy theology of the gospel, is that I think in ministry there should be a daily recognition, and not just ministry but our own Christian lives, a daily recognition that in, in the sense of living this life for the glory of God, and for the extension of his kingdom, I have no bread. Does that make sense? So, I don't know about you, but when I first started youth ministry when I was 19 years old, I literally knew I had no bread. And you know what? 
But my kids knew I had no bread. Because when they heard me preach, they're like, that guy has no bread. You know what I'm saying? Because I didn't know how to preach. I started preaching every week at 19 years old with no training, right? And, um, and every, like, I'm talking like 50 weeks out of 52 weeks or so, I was preaching and doing a Bible study on Friday nights. So I knew I had no bread. They had, knew I had no bread. God knew I, everyone knew I had no bread, right? And so, um, and so, but then, um, I don't think I knew it as clearly as I do now, but I sensed that God had more bread than I had. So what did I do when I first started youth ministry? And what did you do when you first started youth ministry? You probably prayed. Maybe you didn't pray all the time, but you probably prayed right before you preached or taught. Or maybe before your youth night, right? And then what happens a lot of times, unfortunately, is we start to get experience. And we start to get seasoned, which is not a bad thing, amen? That's not the sin, it's our hearts, right? And so after five, ten years, let's say like everything starts to grow. People like you. Parents even like you. Whoa, that's crazy, right? And so you start to believe that you have bread. Now, you know that God has the most bread, but you got some bread. And you ain't got time to go and go to your friend at midnight and ask for that bread, right? So you got to just give the bread out, right? And inevitably what happens is um, either your heart just gets so hardened that you stop you know, depending on God or um, you start to fail. You start to get burned out. Right? That's what a lot of people, they start to get burnt out, you know? And, and I think sometimes, sometimes burnout is just, it's, it's just emotionally unhealthy, you're just in a bad place. But sometimes burnout can be a gift too, to remind you, you never had bread. You never had bread, right? And I think even about the Israelites, right? The manna, there's so much bread themes in the scriptures and, and how every, they, it, it, even when they try to get more bread, right? It, bad things happen, right? <laughs> and, and so every day they had to wait and trust that there was enough bread for them. And there always was enough for that day, right? And in America, we plan ahead, and so we think that we can plan the manna. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, okay, I'll do this three days with God in the beginning of the year, and that'll be enough manna for the year. You know what I mean? And, and so, no, but you need that bread every day. So I love this picture. I mean, we could explore this picture even more, but there's this, there's a sense of almost like desperateness, I feel like, with this guy. Because there's this urgency, right? Like this guy came unexpectedly. And I think how many times in ministry do situations pop up that you're just like, Dude, I don't know what to do, right? Like, like something happened to a student or a family, you're like, I'm in over my head. And, and to say every, every single day there's going to be something, if you, again, if you're about the glory of God and the kingdom being advanced, the, the true kingdom being advanced, where you have to realize, man, I'm going to this day where I just am desperate for help from God. But the great news is that God has more than enough bread for your ministry. Amen? He, like, like he, has, he has all the bread in the world for your ministry. And again, go back to the Father. He wants to bless. Right? We're going to end there in the last section. He wants to bless His people. Amen? But you have to go to Him at midnight. And you have to knock on His door. You have to ask Him and you have to admit that you have no bread. There's, there's a beauty to that. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The humble, blessed are the poor, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? And so there's this, there's this recognition. And, and so the way I kind of define dependent prayer is there's this simultaneous recognition that both of my um, deficiency and my inadequacy and simultaneously my understanding that He is sufficient, that He has enough, and that He wants to bless me. And when those two truths collide... You get dependent prayer and then you get the power of God working in and through you, you and your ministry in ways that you step back and you're like, this is God. 
This is not me. And that's what you want for a youth ministry, amen? Like you want them to step back not and say, dude, that preacher was sick, right? You want to step back and say, I think surely God was in this place. And, and surely He is more satisfying than anything that this world could ever offer. And, and how many of our youth ministries really are having that? I, I don't know about your youth ministries, but most of the youth ministries I've spoken at, it seems like entertainment and just kind of like keeping them there is almost like the goal. Just as long as they're in church, that's better than if they're not. You know what I mean? And that's the goal. And that's not the kingdom. That's not the glory of God. The glory of God is that they're compelled by God. They've seen His beauty, right? So so that's that's the second section in verses 5 through 8. And then verses 9 through 11, just real quickly, or 9 through 10. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. I love, first of all, the ground, right? The four, right? So because um, everyone who asks. Again, this is if you extract this from the context, you get prosperity theology, right? So when people like, you know, blast prosperity theology, I'm like, actually, they have, like, they're exegeting the text just out of context, right? There's a lot of scriptures that talk about God who wants to bless. So don't throw that out. Does that make sense? Sometimes we just swing the pendulum and like, I only got, no, like, God wants to bless for His glory, for your joy, right, and for the extension of the kingdom, right? So, He says, for everyone who asks, receives, right? And to him who knocks, the door will be open, right? And to those who, right, ask, seek, and knock, right? So, what, what I, when, I, when, I, when you say the Greek, right, it's in the present continuous aspect. So, what that means is that, I think it's a translation could be, uh, uh, ask until you receive. Seek until you find. Knock until the door is opened. Right. So, um, you know, I think about just how um, most. OK, first of all, again, let's just say we did a survey of your youth group kids and you surveyed them and said and they were totally honest. How many of you pray regularly? Right. And my, my guess is it'd be a small percent. And that would be awesome. Right. That, that some pray regularly. That'd be awesome. Right. That'd be surprising maybe for some of us. Right. But then if you said, how many you pray until you get an answer. How many of you guys pray until right the door is opened? And, and then how many youth leaders do that? And how many pastors do that? And there is a way to pray religiously and dutifully without actually being dependent on God and expecting God to do great things. And so again, the, the, the foundation is nobody wants His glory more than God. Nobody. Amen? And nobody wants salvation more than God. Right? Nobody wants to form disciples in your youth group more than God. Nobody wants to uh, give victory over besetting sins more than God. No one wants to bring unity among your youth group more than God, right? So he says, for everyone who asks or continues to ask, you will receive. And to everyone who seeks and continues to seek, you will find. And to everyone who knocks and continues to knock, the door will be open to you, right? So one of the analogies I use um, is um, when I was in college, there was this book that some of you might know because some of you guys look like you're my age or older. I won't say who, though. And, um, and there was a book called Where's Waldo? Do you guys remember this book? And, and, and in college, we would, we would almost like have competitions. We would open the pages at the same time, and we would look for Waldo. It's this little red dude, right? Nerdy-looking red dude, red, red-dressed white dude. And he's, he's in this complex picture, and you're looking for him. And, and, and the goal is not spend five minutes, and if you can't find him, you give up. No, you, you look until you find Waldo because you're trying to beat your friend 
and there's some great satisfaction in winning, okay? In finding Waldo first, and then you flip the page, you do it again, right? And so, in a sense, what he's saying is, is the purpose of prayer is not just to do it. Like, that's not the purpose. Like, hey, I spent 10 minutes. Like, when I was a little kid, my goal was to spend five minutes in prayer when I was like six years old. So I would pray the Lord's Prayer on repeat. For, and then I would look up and it would be two minutes. I'm like, oh my God. I, I just prayed like 10 times and then I would do it again until five minutes and then I would go to bed. And I literally, because I didn't know how to pray, so I would just pray the Lord's Prayer over and over again, over and over again until five minutes was up. And then I would go to bed and I'd feel happy, right? So I did it. And maybe for a kid, that's okay, right? But for an adult, right? Maybe what God's saying is the goal is not to just get you to do religious exercises, the goal is for you to actually believe something about the gospel and the character of God that He is jealous for His glory, right? And He is He has promised that the kingdom will extend to all the peoples of the earth, right? And that hasn't happened yet, amen? But that will bring glory to God and that will bring great joy to all those who will be redeemed, right? And so everything about mission is fueled by this great goal of right worship or enjoyment of God and seeing God, right? And some of your youth group kids, even if they say they're saved, they've not seen the glory of God. So get on your knees and ask and seek and knock until you see Him yourself in His glory. And then your kids start to see them. And, and, and when you don't see results right away, don't worry because He's answering. Because He wants this more than you do. As much as some of you love your youth group kids, it doesn't come close to the love that God has. Amen? Because you wouldn't get nailed to the cross for them, right? And you wouldn't let the wrath of God be poured out over you, right? So, so there's, this, there's this humility of saying, all right, not only am I going to pray because I can't do it, but I'm going to pray because God wants to do this. And, and, and so if I see a youth group, like usually what we do is we complain about them, right? And God would say, why don't you be quiet and just come to me? And watch me do it. Now again, it may take months. It may even take years because there's so many factors that are going on. But God will do it according to His glory and His will, right? And the extension of His kingdom, all right? And then lastly this. Um, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit uh, to those who ask, okay. So um, I think Jesus uses some humor here, right? Like, because um, I've never—I mean, I, I know that there are parents who are abusive at times. I know that a lot of, but I've never met a, a father who, when his son said, "Hey, can I have like some bread, Daddy?" And he's like, "Sure, here." Like, Dad, this bread is hard and heavy, and just eat it. I'm your dad. And then he bites into it, and his teeth fall out, and the dad's like laughing. He fell for that, right? Like that's just evil, right? And so it's humorous, right? Like no parent would do that. Not even the messed up parents, right? And so he's saying, listen, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. I love this. It's just logic. How much more then? Right? Because I, I think like, I think most of us, when we think about God, and I'm not talking about our kids, I'm talking about us. When we think about when we pray to God, I think we, we see God like kind of with his back to us, with his maybe arms across, and you're like trying to like eloquently get him to turn around. But God's posture towards you because of Christ is actually at the edge of His seat wanting to bless. And if you don't believe that, think about Scripture. Like, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Christ, graciously give us what? 
Yeah, not some things. All things. All things. Right? Again, in the context of His glory in the Gospel. All things. So again, I think sometimes our aversion to prosperity theology could sometimes make us actually uh, avoid the spiritual blessings that He has for us in Christ. Like, like we sometimes minister out of an orphan mentality where we think we're on our own. And how many of us have been like Elijah? Oh, I'm the only one. I'm the only youth minister who preaches the gospel. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I'm the only youth minister who's faithful. All those other fools are trying to entertain, but not me. I'm faithful. Right? And, um, and so we think we're on our own. But first of all, you're not. There's at least 7,000 hopeful youth pastors that are with you, you know. <laughs> but probably more. And, and most importantly, God is with you. And He's for you. He's for you. That's, that's the way he ends, right? He starts off, pray Father, hallowed be your name. And he ends with a good father. And he's saying to you, this father is, not only is he generous, he gave you his son. So the gospel that informs your prayer theology. Because I think most of us, we haven't applied the gospel theology into our prayer life. So we think that God will give us his son, that's the best thing, but we don't think God will give us the second or the third or the fourth things. The applications of giving you the best thing is He'll give you all things that are for His glory and for your joy and your holiness. Amen? That's the great news of the Gospel. So the Gospel actually informs and, and, and literally compels you to pray rather than says, all right, God's got this. He's going to take care of it. He's sovereign. No, no, no. Actually, the Gospel informs you and encourages you and empowers you and compels you to pray. Thanks for listening to The Rooted Podcast, where we hope to communicate the truths of the gospel and apply those truths to youth ministry. We would love for you to check out our website where we publish articles daily geared towards both youth ministers and parents. You will also find resources and more information about our conferences, regional events, and more at www.rootedministry.com.